I'll go get it. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Digging Deep. I'm Roberta Walker. And I'm Michael Glassman. We're two landscape designers who, believe it or not, have been in the field well over 25 years. Well over. (laughs) And through this podcast, Digging Deep, we're going to bring to you our knowledge and our challenges. Our foibles, stories, and ideas, and anything that can help you and your family create unique, unusual landscapes. And that's about the name of the game these days, is... um, Creating your landscape, getting it back in shape, making it habitable for you, the family, the dogs, but also making it into a place where you could live outside. Absolutely. Yeah, the outdoor room. Outdoor room. So today we're going to talk about hardscape, and um, hardscape is one of the, well, one of the very first things, not the very first thing, but the big thing that's going to happen in your landscape once you've A, planned for it, B, graded for it, C, done any underground electrical or plumbing PVC for it, and then the hardscape goes in. And Michael and I are oh, going to talk oh, wait, about Wait, 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 C, what? save your money for it. Save your money for it, yeah. Okay, so hardscape is the most expensive thing going into your landscape. Now, that's barring a pool, which is right. more expensive, or if you want some boulders the size of Stonehenge, that could ring up uh, a, a large bill. Um, but really, uh, the decision about putting in hardscape, which means any hard surface like a patio, a walkway, a, a deck, wall, right. a deck, that's hardscaping, and that's where the planning is really, really important. Yes. Uh, that's where where um, that that if you plan it correctly, you'll do it once and maybe never have to do it again. Because after you've spent all that money, you don't want to do it and redo it and do it and redo it. And um, that's why we talk to people about how planning makes so much so becomes so important is so that you're not doing something and redoing it. That's right. Now, um, when we're talking about hardscaping, like I said, it could be pathways, it could be your patio, it could be your driveway. And I've, I have clients, many clients, but uh, this, this couple in particular, I did their home many years ago. And for t- the 25 years they lived in the house, they never had a clear concrete path all the way around their house. They just lived like that. And when, we find, when I said, well, it should go all the way around the house, it was like a miracle happened to them once that went in. It's like, oh, my God, we could walk all the way around or wheel something all the way around the house on a hard surface level. Which is a great idea. It's a great idea. And also, if you have an area where you want to store a shed or your garbage, these are things that you need to plan for. You don't want to just put in a path and say, oh, shucks, we should have made a pad, you know, for the the shed that we want or we might get later or the garbage that's always sitting halfway in the dirt. You know, this, this, this is important. Right. And in some of the new developments, the developer puts in the driveway, they might put in a little back patio, but they don't provide a walkway that goes from the driveway to the backyard. And so what happens is uh, a lot of times you, you leave the garbage cans on the side, but there's no way to schlep them over, over the dirt 
to get them down the driveway to be able to take them out. So again, planning for that, planning a nice wide walkway on the side so that you can be able to maneuver those garbage cans makes a lot of sense. Right. And let's say you have a, a new home. There's a lot of new homes going up and they are sandwiched into a five foot area, sometimes less between the fence and then the next fence and the next neighbor. So it doesn't have to be that the garbage has to go right by the garage door, right by the gate. You could cut a gate in the other side and do a path down your front yard. It could be a straight shot. It could be meandering. But you, it's, there's no law saying you can only have one path that comes out of the gate to your driveway and down. You need to make sure that you do what works for you. Absolutely. And when we talk about hardscape and walkways, for example, um, I always believe in separating your modes of transportation, meaning that people use walkways, cars use driveways. So for me, it's not a good design to have to walk up a person's driveway to get to the front door. So I always do a separate front walkway. And people say, well, how wide should that be? And I always tell people a minimum, not a maximum, but a minimum of at least five feet. Because again, you want, if someone's going to come and walk to your front door, a lot of times there might be more than one person and you don't want them to have to walk single file um, like pigeons. Um, a lot of times people will walk side by side and talk to each other as they're coming to your house. And so if you make a nice five foot, six foot, even a seven foot wide walkway, it makes it very comfortable to be, to be able to maneuver. It does. Now, if you don't have that much room, a four foot walkway would do. Now, a minimum basic walkway is three feet. You don't want a three foot walkway up to right. the front door. But if you're in a very small, um, you know, if, you're, if your landscape's very small, if you're living in a, a townhouse, you know, depending on your situation, a four, feet, a four foot walkway is fine. Two people can walk next to each other. So we don't want you to think that, you know, it's got to be one size or the other, but we want you to think about not having to go single file. And 99.9% .9 of all homes built make you walk up the driveway and take a sharp right, you know, or left on a path to the front door. There exactly. are, you know, there are a few that put a walkway in the front, um, but that's, that's something that both Michael and I highly recommend. And the bottom line is, and people say, well, why can't I use the driveway? Well, invariably, people don't park in the garage. So you have cars parked on the driveway. And especially if it's raining, you're trying to skinny in between the two cars that are on the driveway to get to the front door. I also recommend when people are thinking about a front walkway, um, try to be a little bit more creative, whether it be staggered pads, whether it be a nice kind of serpentine. Don't make it, in my opinion, don't make it look like a gigantic tongue that's sticking out of the front door. Right. Unless you don't have a choice. Again, there's right. some houses that you don't have much room. Now, let's say you have your driveway already and it's pretty narrow and um, and there's no walkway. Well, there's a couple things you could do. Adding a walkway is is easy. And like Michael said, having it meandered or staggered is wonderful. But if you can't afford to redo your driveway and it's been bothering you because there's not enough room, you could add on to your driveway. You could add another two or three feet or even four feet. And it, that material, after you grade it, could be concrete. It could be concrete with flagstone. It could be pavers. So don't feel like you're stuck with what you've got. And that way it'll give you a transition between the 
the driveway space and the front walkway space. You know, and that's really important also when you're thinking about a separate walkway, um, think about navigating at night. So some way of lighting it. If you're going to do steps, you always want to put lights on the steps so someone doesn't break their neck. Or even if it's sloping, um, the one nice thing about a sloping walkway is someone in a wheelchair or a walker will have no problems being able to get up and down it. But again, at night, you want to make sure it's illuminated enough so you don't break your neck or wind up walking off the walkway. Yes. And if you're if you're pouring a walkway and there's a slope and you're putting in a step, put a light in the step. So many right. people don't do that. And you could put footlights along the path, but it really helps to let people know that step coming up. You know? Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's one of the so that's one area where hardscape becomes really, really important um, is a front yard. Then uh, we go to the backyard. Okay, so the backyard, okay, the, you know, the most basic thing in a backyard um, is walking on a slider and having a patio. You agree? I agree. Okay, so um, I tell people that the minimum, and let's say you have a very small yard, okay, let's say you can't afford a lot of concrete, you don't want to do a patio any less than 14 feet out from your house. And that's not a huge space, but it's enough to have a table and chairs and not back your chair out of the table and fall into your landscape. True, true. And I like that idea. Unfortunately, in some of the newer developments, um, they only give you only have 10 to 12 feet um, and you have to work with what you got, you know. But in a in a in a perfect situation, a minimum of fourteen feet of depth is great, and then length can be as long as you want it. As long as and and again, keep in mind, there's I've never seen a situation where a client complains to me that they have too much patio space. It's just the opposite. They want to have people over. They want to be able to entertain. So they would rather have a bigger space so that everyone's not jammed on top of each other. That's true. So, um, so that's planning. And sometimes you might have an idea of the size patio you want, but it's not a bad idea to take the hose or take string and lay it out and then put your furniture inside of that patio. Because oftentimes it's not just the dining room table and chairs. You know, you want to have a sitting area, you want to have like outdoor furniture, a little love seat. So you could easily either use a hose, use string, buy marking paint, and actually paint out the area because there's a big difference between thinking about what you want, the conception, and then the reality of what's going to fit. That's a great idea. And the truth is, once you've done that, let's say you haven't bought furniture, now you know the space you have to work with. And so you're not buying an oversized couch, an oversized table, and you get it there and you realize, oh my God, there's not enough room to put it anywhere. So this way it's it's due diligence. You you figured out the size of entertainment space you have to work with. And then at the same time, you can also go backwards and figure out now that you know how much room you've got, what kind of what size you can do for your furniture. And it, it goes hand in hand. You don't buy one without the other. You don't design one without the other. That's right. You know, I have to tell you a little story. Years and years ago, when I bought uh, my house, I said to my daughter, who was quite young then, I, we need a really big, comfy chair, you know, that we could just plop in and read. Well, my house isn't that big. I have big property, but small house. And so we went to a store that uh, I think is still around called the Z Gallery, having really great stuff. And, and Really nice stuff. 
we yeah. picked out this big oversized chair. It was just lovely, the fabric, everything. Well, when it was finally delivered and put in my living room, it was like, uh-oh, everything else became dollhouse furniture. <laughs> right, right. Too big for the space. So um, so when you're looking for furniture, you've you got to look at the measurements as well. And um, sometimes if you really can't visualize it, you could use cardboard boxes as furniture in the space you're gonna you're designing to see what actually will fit. I think that's a great idea, and you're absolutely right. It's like, for example, if you're planning a home or you're building it and you're thinking about doing a loggia, which is a covered structure that's part of the the um, exterior of your house. So it's solid cover all the way over. So many times people build these loggias thinking, oh, I've got this great covered area, but they make them too, the depth-wise, too narrow. They make them eight feet. Shallow. And so you when you, right, it's way too shallow. You put a table and chairs there, and then the next thing you know, if you pull the chair out, you're falling off, you know, out of the loggia or you have you don't have enough room to get around it. So it's really important that you understand people spend more time thinking about the inside of their house and furniture arrangement and what will fit than they do the outside. And yet they do a lot of entertaining on the outside of the house. So you have to almost start thinking mindset yourself to thinking it's an outdoor room. The only difference between the inside and the outside is this may not have complete walls, may not have air conditioning and heating, but it's still a room and you're still going to furnish it like you would furnish the inside of your house. Exactly. And guess what? Generally, if you're buying furniture that's going to last, it's more expensive than the furniture inside your house for the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. It's because it's outside, it's dealing with the elements, it's fabric that could take, you know, dirt and rain. You don't want to leave them out there, but they clean up beautifully. And um, over the years, I've seen so many of my clients buy furniture that, that's less expensive and cheaper, and it just lasts so long, and it has to be thrown out, and you buy it again. So, Oh, it's true. And in fact, my wife came home. She was saying one of her colleagues was complaining that, you know, she had bought some inexpensive cushions for outside and she couldn't understand, you know, initially why is outdoor furniture and outdoor cushions so expensive? Sunbrella is a brand that will contain the elements. And so she bought cheaper stuff and it was like a year, year and a half later and they were just disintegrating. And the bottom line is that was the reason um, outdoor furniture, outdoor fabrics can take the sun, the rain, um, the change in elements, whereas regular fabrics, though they're beautiful and everything and less expensive, you put them outdoors, you're lucky if you get a year, a year and a half out of them uh, because they literally can fall apart. Absolutely. Well, um, before we go back to our subject of hardscaping, I just want to say that if there are the DIYers, the do-it-yourselfers who make your own cushions, you could buy Sunbrella fabric on a great website called thefabricguru.com. And they have, I'd say, over 50,000 varieties of not just upholstery fabric, but outdoor fabric and Sunbrella fabric. And understand that Sunbrella fabrics and others, and even designer fabrics, could cost you over $200 per yard. You right. could go there and buy remnants and make a whole mess of nice cushions. So remember, we're here to tell you that there are all different types of ways to create a beautiful landscape. You don't have to break the bank. Right, and and it's true. If you happen to be a talented person about where, where you can sew, 
you can do amazing things. I mean, you can buy an inexpensive little iron gazebo with with fabric over it from um, a place like Target, and they're yeah. not expensive. The fabric's going to fall apart. But I had a client who did that, who bought um, a fabric um, topped gazebo, took all the fabric off, and she does amazing sewing she bought the umbrella fabric sewed her own own top to it it's beautiful it yeah. looks it's rich it's elegant um and all she basically she was able to get the gazebo frame for next to nothing and um it lasts years and it looks it looks high-end and it's absolutely amazing yeah so there's there's a good tip now so we've been talking about the importance of designing the patio and a little bit of um size but let's talk about the materials so michael let's go from the very least expensive material to create a patio to the most expensive okay i would say the least expensive would be either gravel or decomposed granite i i would start with gravel i'll tell you why so with gravel with anything you're going to put down you're going to have to grade down right you got to right. you got create an area. And if you're doing that, you're going to have to border it with something to keep whatever material that's loose in and whatever you've got outside out. And if you're using pea gravel or decomposed granite, um, pea gravel, if you put down a weed barrier in the pea gravel, which I don't use rolling pea gravel, you know, the real round pebbles I use. A right. Rock, um, you could just put it down and it's good. Decomposed granite has to be rolled in and set. Right. Right. It's an extra step. Right. The problem for people, you know, if, if they're they're wondering that decomposed granite uh, will track onto your shoes and will even if you roll it, even if it's nice and tight, will get onto your shoes. And if you have wood floors and this is also the same thing with gravel, it can get stuck in between, you know, the, the spaces in your shoes. You go into your beautiful wood floors. The next thing you know, you put divots and scratches all over your wood floors. So you have to be aware that if you are going to use those materials, yes, they're less expensive, but then you have to have a rule that before you come in, you take your shoes off. Otherwise, you're going to, if you happen to have wood floors, you're going to absolutely wipe them out. Right. So, um, so either one of those, now with the decomposed granite, um, it, it does have clay in it, and that's what makes it set with water, and you roll it and compact it. But there's also a uh, a liquid stabilizer that you could add in between the layers. And right. uh, I, I always liken it to a Rice Krispie treat, you know, by the time you're done. But um, it is one more step above um, a crushed rock patio. But, you know, all over England and France and Italy, in the vineyards, they're using crushed rock outdoors. And so, um, like Michael said, if you're aware, you know, you, you just become aware if you live in the house that you check your shoes before you go in. But it is the least expensive um, patio surface that you could use. And then um, decomposed granite is next. So the next step is, Michael? Poured concrete. Poured concrete. And even concrete has many different steps or layers of price, right? Right. You can do a... You can do a salt finish where they actually take salt granules, um, rock salt. When the concrete is wet, they throw it in there, they tamp it down, they let it dry. The next morning, they wash it off um, because it's salt, it disintegrates, and you get this kind of neat pockmarked look, which has a really, really cool uh, texture to it, not as slippery, and it creates a nice effect. Or you can do a broom finish which is smooth but you then take right before it's dry you take a broom and you run it run it through so it has kind of a broom finish you can actually see where the bristles 
So the broom are. There's all well. There's also so um, so those are your basic. Now um, for the for the more expensive finishing, there's there's two different types, um, and we'll talk about banding afterwards. There is um, stamped concrete, and then there is the um, uh, the sandblasted concrete, which is right. come in vogue again. And with any of these finishes, even the most basic pigment color can be added that's going to be an added cost not huge but it's going to be an added cost so if you do a simple broom finish um it, it with with a nice color and banding which we'll talk about which are grooves that are cut into it it could be very high-end looking right and when you're doing color you either do an integral color, which is actually mixed all the way through the batch, so that if you were to break or chip the concrete, the color goes all the way through, or you can put a hardener right on the surface, and so basically it's just on the surface of the concrete. And when you do a stamped concrete, they actually, when the concrete's wet, they actually use a mold, um, it and they actually impress it into the concrete, so it gives it the texture of, say, a slate or a tile, or something like that and it gives it a little bit more texture or even wood i mean they have they have the most yes, yes. Um, patterns that could look like english stones all kinds of things and that is that stamped in and they usually do a sealer now that's the high end of concrete that's and you have to know that generally even if you choose a color they're going to add a second color to really you know make the relief of that show up you know the cracks right so it's not just flat it actually has some dimension by putting more than one color in it and you do or release so that the color comes out and, and it can be very effective if it's done correctly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I would say with basic, um, with, if, with a basic concrete, let's say, and a pigment, I think if we slide to the right, you're in the same kind of price range. If you were to use pieces of Arizona flagstone in decomposed granite for a patio, wouldn't you say price wise? Yeah. That's that's probably right. Um, here in California, you're looking at the basic concrete is is up to ten dollars a square foot right now. Yep. Um, the the colored is like twelve to thirteen. The stamped is thirteen to fifteen. And you're right. The the flagstone and decomposed granite, or even flagstone set on some mortar, not a concrete base, but mortar, mm -hmm. would be about thirteen to fifteen dollars a square foot. Right. And um, and then again, if we slide to the other side of that, you are looking more in the stamp concrete dollar range if you're going to use concrete pavers or what's called paved stones. Right. If and that actually has gone up in price that, yeah, that can be as much as 15 to $18 a square foot, depending on what area and what region you are. And that's where they actually take a paver which is um, inch and a half to two inches thick. They put it on road base or sand and gravel. They compact it down and um, they don't use any mortar and um, they, they keep it nice and tight together, but it is permeable, so water will go through it. Right, water will go through it. And if it's not, if you try to do a home job yourself and you don't get it tight, you're gonna have um, weeds growing in the cracks. So right. it, it's something you want a professional to do. Um, it's and again, you and people are saying, well, what holds it together? You either do a metal edging or you can pour a band of concrete and put the paper and then mortar the paved stone, the last paved stone on it. So it acts like a frame around all the rest of the paper.
in stones. Right. And wherever you buy your papers, um, they will sell the material to hold it in. There's different choices. And um, these days, I'm so impressed. It used to be if you bought um, pavers, there was like a, a few varieties. And if you were doing a retaining wall, you had the choice of keystone or keystone, which is really industrial. And then, right. the, then the big thing that came out was country manor, which were like keystone, but they were tumbled to look like an old wall, like an old English right. wall. Nowadays, there are so many choices of pavers and paving blocks. It's re they're really a, a wonderful alternative if you're looking for something different. Right, and it's not. And um, one of the most beautiful things is to use them for a driveway. But again, you're talking about eighteen dollars a square foot installed to some somewhere up, depending on the the brand. And, and the type, it can go as high as $20 a square foot. But the look is amazing, and it really softens down the entire environment. It does. Now, the only uh, material, well, the two materials more expensive than that is um, a flagstone, beautiful flagstone set on a concrete base and mortared, or brick, again, set on a concrete base and mortar. And I'm not talking about brick in decomposed granite or, you know, um, set in soil. That's, that's still expensive, but not as expensive as having a concrete base, which makes the pathway absolutely flat. No tripping, no weeds, no nothing. Right. And going with that, there are lots of materials. Once you, you pour a concrete base, you now have the, the base of it rather than sand and gravel or road base. Now you can cover over that concrete with, as uh, Roberta said, you can do flagstone, you can do brick, you can do bluestone, you can do travertine, you can do porcelain tiles. The list goes on and on. You can do beautiful sandstone or uh, bluestone. You know, it all depends and, and depending on the look you want, pattern you want, the cost you want to spend. Travertine can cost, for travertine tile, can cost anywhere from 4 to $5 per square foot. Um, bluestone can be 4 to $8 a square foot. I mean, and it just keeps going higher and higher. You can go as high as 20 or $30 just for the materials per square foot. Again, it depends on the look you want and the feel you want. Basically, you're remodeling, and, and with any yes. remodel, there's a choice of materials, and there's also price points to everything. And so, um, the the one thing that I have to say is choose what you love. Don't buy cheap and say, okay, it'll do, because once everything's paid for, let maybe take three or four years, you're going to think, ah, oh, why didn't I just wait and save up for what I really want? Right. And basically, there's another thing, a story that I have to share is, yes, it's expensive. Let's face it. Nowadays, materials are expensive. Labor is expensive. And you're right. It, it, it's, it's an investment. But I will tell you, I did a project about 23 years ago, and the clients, um, this was their this was their dream home. They, I had worked with them on another house. Then they finally bought this place that they loved. They built the house. Um, they were on a limited budget and we designed uh, the master plan and we started with the first phase. And the first phase were all the, the upper terraces off the patio, off the doors, big, large patios. And we did it with a bluestone and which is like a slate, but it's thicker. Um, it, it's got a really wonderful texture and it's very expensive. So they did all of their paving 
around the house, you know, their patios in the bluestone. They were not able to do their walkways. They weren't able to do around the pool. And there were a lot of things that they couldn't do because it wasn't in their budget. Um, fast forward about 23, 25 years ago, they finally retired. They had the money and they were still in their dream home and they wanted to live the rest of their lives there. This was their home. And they called me back and said, we're ready to do the next phase. I show up. This has been 23 years, 24 years, and I have to tell you, every place that they had the bluestone was in perfect condition. Other than a little bit of cleaning and pressure washing, the bluestone was immaculate. It was in great shape. There were no cracks. It didn't move. Um, every place that they had poured concrete, it was almost 25 years later, was literally crumbling. The concrete was um, turning to dust, it was cracked, it was falling apart. It was just a mess. And that shows you, and we wound up for the next phase, taking all the old concrete, repouring new concrete, covering it over with the bluestone so that it, and it, the hard thing was trying to find bluestone that would match the original because it had been like 20 some odd years. And we actually had to send, send uh, back East to find it. The point of the story is, is that something that 23 to 25 years later looks as good as the day you put it in versus the cheaper material that after 23, 25 years, it was turning to dust. So what I tell people, and that's kind of what uh, Roberta was saying earlier, is you're better off to invest, you're better off to save and put the ultimate of what you want so that several years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, you're not ripping out the old stuff and having to start all over than just putting in something temporary and watching it crumble and wasting your money there. Because money's money and watching it go down the toilet doesn't make sense. Doesn't. So just before we close, um, I also want to I want to put in this also alternative way to do a patio. A lot of people, they'll collect um, old pieces of flat stone or old cobbles that they found from, you know, some sidewalk in a city, um, metal objects. I've seen on Pinterest and other places some really funky but wonderful patios done of found materials. So. Again, that's an alternative. The ones that we spoke about are the, mo the most mainstream um, for patios. However, they're not the only materials for patios. So there's so many ideas out there and places where you could look for these ideas. But um, planning, planning, planning is the very first step of how much space you need for your walkway or your patio. Right. Planning, planning, saving, 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 putting money aside. Yeah. Yes. Saving is, is, is very important also. And, and we can talk more about it in, um, using unusual materials. I use, I do like using uh, salvage materials and things that, that can be re repurposed. I use them as accents rather than the whole thing. But um, it's a great idea. And, and certainly we can talk more about that in, in future podcasts. Yeah. Well, we hope that you've um, got some new ideas and learned some things from us in this podcast. And we're happy to keep blabbing on and on and on. But we're going to wait for that till next week. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> um, I'm Roberta Walker. I'm Michael Glassman. And we're Digging Deep. deep.